0: Well, I could talk about TV and podcasts all day.
1: Welcome to Props and Hops, a podcast pursuing the best in bedding and beer and part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. I'm your host, Matt Landis, and with the NFL season kicking off next week, this week it's a bit of the calm before the storm with the return of Mrs. Props and Hops, my beautiful wife, Allison, rejoining the show. And in this episode, we're going to put both the props and the hops on a bit of a pause and focus more on the human element namely some of our favorite recent documentaries, podcasts, and profiles on some of the most interesting people and stories in the world of sports. We're going to touch on Untold, the recent Manti Teo documentary, Catching Fire on Netflix. We're also going to talk Luck, the podcast series about Andrew Luck by Zach Kiefer and The Athletic. In addition, the Sean McVeigh profile, an article by Seth Wickersham of ESPN published August 9th, There was also a great companion ESPN daily podcast on that same day. And then we'll talk man in the arena, the Tom Brady documentary on ESPN plus, as well as the captain, the documentary focused on Derek Jeter also on ESPN plus one quick housekeeping note before we cut to the conversation. This episode is sponsored by the power ranks sports betting newsletter, valuable, concise, and entertaining. These are Dr. Ed Fang's three goals with each correspondence, which mostly covers the NFL and college football. Ed is a friend, a fellow fan of craft beer and the old fashioned, and a data scientist whose work has informed my betting. So check out the newsletter at thepowerrank.com and join me as a subscriber. With that, we'll move on with the episode. And first things first, Allison, welcome back to Props and Hops.
0: Thanks for having me.
1: Always glad to have you on, and this will be a fun conversation. We can really focus, I think, more on your wheelhouse than mine throughout the course of these documentaries, podcast series, and profiles that we'll touch on. And let's kick it off with Untold, the Mount documentary on Netflix. We watched it this past weekend as we record the evening of Monday, the 29th Pacific time. It's a little after 8.30, so NFL season a little more than a week away. But before we get there, some good stuff people can catch up on if they want to. And if they're considering untold, what do you think they should know going into it?
0: Yeah, I recommend this one. Um, it's only two episodes, so it's really easy to get through. We watched it both in one night. Um, and it's funny because, you know, this all happened what, 10 years ago. So not that I forgot about it all, but it has not been in the forefront of my thoughts. So it was interesting kind of revisiting it 10 years later and hearing a lot of details at least I didn't know at the time. Um Basically, they kind of just go over how Mandateo got catfished, uh, you know, when he was at Notre Dame and there was a whole thing of his grandma and his supposed girlfriend died in the same day and it was, you know, made into a really big deal. And it turns out after some, like, investigating by these deadspin journalists that she never existed. But meanwhile, in this documentary was interesting because you kind of hear from his family and his close friends that it seems like some people were suspicious long before this came out. Um, And ultimately, it's just really interesting because I also, I don't know that I ever knew that this went on for three to four years. I didn't think it it was that long of a con, but you just hear about how, um, uh, like, thorough, sort of. It's not just like, oh, it was a fake Facebook profile, and there was, like, you know, messages sent. Like, they talk about times when Manti Teo, like, thought he was meeting, you know, her cousins or like a younger sibling. And, you know, he met people in real life, but not even realizing that they had no relation to this woman who didn't exist. And it's super strange. And it's like after watching it, you know, you do feel bad for him. And he seems like a really good guy and everything. But I still kind of was left with even more questions
1: yeah and one of the first comments i had as we watched this when you talk about him seeming like a pretty good guy right now i do remember the detail oh yeah his grandma had passed away that same day and then you're really big into american history so i was like hey this seems like almost a bit of a teddy roosevelt situation and do you remember your immediate reaction when i threw that out there
0: oh did i say but teddy roosevelt's wife wife was real (laughs)
1: <laughs> Basically, you're like, yeah, except Roosevelt's actually happened. So it's easy to start out a little bit callous with this because of what we remember hearing almost ten years ago. It was January 2013 when the Dead Spin Scoop came out. So yeah, I I just feel like there was so much peeled away into Teo's personality that we didn't know. Because watching him speak now, it seems like he's come to peace with a lot that he really seemed conflicted about almost every time you saw him speak in public from the time he declared which college he was going to attend.
0: Yeah, that's one thing we were saying in real time. We were watching it. And like you just because you get to see him now, obviously, because he's participating in this documentary. But then when they cut to any footage of him from the past, yeah, when he was making the decision to go to Notre Dame to when he was playing there. And even at you know the Heisman Award ceremony, he just looks so uncomfortable. And now it's like interesting because you have this perspective of, you know, what was going on and just frankly how uncomfortable he seemed to be being in, you know, the Midwest having come from a small town in Hawaii, you know, where everyone's basically from his same church, you know, same background and he's kind of thrust into this whole new environment on top of all this chaos going on. and you know, obviously by the time it broke in the press, he had already been dealing with stuff for weeks or months at this point, And you just didn't realize like how much he was holding on to.
1: I'm listening to you, but I'm also thinking that it's so nice doing my first props and hops interview where I'm not the one holding the mic.
0: Lucky you. Well, I could talk about TV and podcasts all day, but, and this one, especially cause like, you know, I love like a heist or a con, you know, kind of movie. And like, this is a very long con. And like, to say you're impressed is like it's not the right word because what um what was her name again Renaya. yeah what Renaya did obviously was not good but sometimes you just look at this stuff and like the dedication these people have to the lie is it's startling and you're just kind of going like wow all this um intelligence and discipline and like You know, thinking through all these different manipulative tactics, like it's energy that could be so much better spent on anything else. And I was kind of wondering, too, um, if, you know, she's done stuff like this before, because it did not seem like her first rodeo. Like, I just I don't understand. But it was also, you know, before social media was really that big, because I think it started in, was it 08, 09?
1: Yeah, if the scoop came out in early 2013, then probably right around the turn of the decade would be when it picked up.
0: Yeah, you forget how Facebook only came out in like 04, 05, so all this stuff was still very new, but having said that, again, just the fact that she was able to pose as, you know, this woman's cousin and then brought her sisters so that, you know, Mandy Taylor thought he was meeting her family, like, it, it just was way more in depth than I ever thought, and I actually didn't even realize he talked to her on the phone that they had phone conversations when it first broke. I don't know why I only had remembered that they shared. I couldn't remember if it was texts or just Facebook messages, but you realize like, Oh, she put on like a female voice and did sound convincing. So, um, while I was still after watching the documentary, you know, obviously felt bad for Manti Tao, but also still was left feeling like he was still pretty naive. And after a few years of this, I feel like he, probably should have caught on a bit earlier. I mean, even his friend, who I actually really liked in the documentary, you know, even he was Googling her name and couldn't find anything. Like, he was doing some very preliminary research and was skeptical of it, and it sounded like Manti Teo's dad was also skeptical. So there were definitely many red flags along the way, but I have to say, this does provide a pretty sympathetic portrayal of Manti Teo because, again, I didn't realize how long and kind of thought out and you know intricate this kind of catfishing scheme really was
1: yeah what do you think of the way that Rania was portrayed throughout the documentary
0: I think overall this documentary is very sympathetic to everyone involved in like Manta Teo of course was very sympathetic but even to the perpetrator it was very sympathetic um you know they also tackle the issue that you know she was clearly like dealing with her sexuality and her gender identity. So while you can totally understand, like that must've been a really difficult time for her. um, It doesn't quite excuse what she did. And even she's not really saying it excuses it either, but that adds a whole other layer of complexity that frankly, like the document only touches on. I mean, you could have done another episode or two about this. And like I said, I was kind of wondering and not to be highly speculative, but like, did she do this to other people cuz it really just didn't seem like the first if this is the first attempt like that was a that was insane but um but yeah i think overall it's a very sympathetic um documentary which it's not really surprising when you think about it because they all agreed to participate in it so that's also it's great in one way but in another way it's not exactly like the most hard hitting like asking the tough questions like if anything the two dead spin journalists were kind of the most interesting part because they're the ones sitting there like they're basically the audience in this documentary. They're the ones kind of throwing their hands up going, what is going on over here and why isn't anyone looking at this? And, you know, they're kind of like, again, like I, I really kind of related most to them because then and now I'm still sort of left perplexed.
1: Yeah, I think one of my big takeaways, you touched on, could this have been Renee's first time pulling this off? Probably not, given the intricacy involved, but they were showing Manti check-in with other people via Facebook, I believe other football players at other schools, who had some ties perhaps to the hometown or, or a certain area in Hawaii, and asking people if they knew Linay, and he was getting confirmation that they did. And then to your point about the phone calls, not just the the text or Facebook messages, there were, I believe, teammates of Manti's at Notre Dame who were in the room, like they'd be playing video games, and then they would hear the voice, say, on speakerphone or something like that, and everybody seemed fairly convinced. Was it Dr. Phil who brought in, like, voice experts, and they had heard Runaya's voice not as Linnae, and then the audio as Linnae? And they said something like, there's a 1% chance this is the same person. So on one hand, it's like, damn, there's kind of a lot of skill involved to pull off something like that. It's a shame for that kind of skill to be used in that manner. And then to your point, there's also so much due diligence that could have still been done, even though it was convincing in some ways to not fall for it for that long of a time horizon. But ultimately, I really liked... I think it was Manti's last words in the documentary, just coming to terms with everything the best you can. He doesn't pretend like he couldn't have handled certain things a lot better. And just knowing that the rest of his life, he can walk into a lot of rooms and he will be the laughingstock, but still being willing to pose for a picture or, or sign an aut- autograph for the one person who might actually want it. And just coming to terms with how everybody else might think of him, I don't know how much work it takes mentally just to get to that point, but it was really cool to see that as uncomfortable as he looked, starting with a clip of him committing to Notre Dame when it seemed like he wanted to commit to USC. Before all this happened, he seemed uncomfortable when he was on the record in the public. And in this case, just maybe about as at peace as you can be with that kind of crazy scenario side, you know, almost wrecking your life and really putting a damper on your NFL career before it gets off the ground.
0: Yeah, it's kind of a heartbreaking end, even though it's ultimately hopeful. And that's why I am really glad. Again, I haven't dug too deep into it. But from what I've seen, like headlines, it's like he's getting a lot of really good um, support from people watching. So I hope that makes him feel better. Because, yeah, the whole time you're watching again, like I said, it's a very sympathetic portrayal to pretty much everyone involved. But having said that, it still takes guts to talk about a highly embarrassing moment in your life that frankly like the second you hear his name I think everyone automatically thinks oh catfish or fake girlfriend and you know has some kind of opinion of him so yeah definitely um would recommend it against only two episodes and most of these documentaries I feel like are you know two or three episodes too long so if anything this one, I'm like oh I actually would have loved a little more but yeah it, it was a really good watch
1: when you talk about the first thing most people think of when they hear his name, inevitably now it's that whole hoax. And that reminds me as I think back the last decade, when I heard that was a hoax, that's maybe as surprised as I've been about any news that I've gotten. And the only other time in the sports world that I can remember being stopped in my tracks and saying what would be aside from the day that Kobe passed away. I remember you telling me there was a helicopter crash and I had a hard time believing it. So that was its own ordeal. And we've probably got many documentaries on that down the road. But when Andrew Luck retired seemingly out of nowhere, I think it was a Saturday night in the middle of the preseason. I think we'd just gotten home from being out with friends and it's just like, how is this real? Like you see the headlines everywhere and you think that there must be a mistake. You can't even comprehend it. So maybe this can bridge us to luck a little bit. And it definitely portrayed him in a positive light a lot of the time, but maybe it didn't need to be as sympathetic because while he met with the reporter off the record, he wasn't a constant participant throughout the series, the same way Manti was in Untold.
0: I remember when you, cause you're the one who told me that Andrew Luck was retiring. And I remember my first words to you were something along the lines of good for him. <laughs> cause I just remember he kept getting beat up so much and he's about our age. Maybe he's probably younger than us, but, um, so he's a young guy and I just remember season after season, you know, there's such high hopes for him in the Colts and it just always seemed like he was getting hurt and like severely hurt. So I was happy for him. And I also knew that he was obviously known for being a really just intellectually smart person and he could probably do anything he wanted to. So, it it wasn't like to me i felt like okay he must be doing this for a good reason and frankly like, the world's his oyster he can do anything and after listening to the podcast series which i really really loved i didn't realize too that his style of play was maybe reckless is not the right word but aggressive and so while of course like he could have had more support protecting him on the field i thought the podcast did a really good job of showing you know how it was kind of like there were just a bunch of issues and actually the way his style of play was one of the reasons why he was getting injured so much.
1: Yeah. I think that's a good point because so often whenever there's a major event, it's okay. Who can we blame? Who's responsible for this? And I, on one hand really align with accountability, but on the other hand, I think that often it's a little bit too simplistic to say this was the cause or this is the person to blame. They talked about, you know, Bruce Arians took over when Chuck Pagano got, I think it was leukemia and Arians had the no risk it, no biscuit scheme as they call it, the deep drop back, the really long developing plays. And that did luck, no favors behind a pretty porous offensive line. And I think the Colts tried to draft offensive linemen and, and build up around him. And you could say that they should have done more around the offensive line. You know, earlier draft picks that went to skill positions that weren't necessary, perhaps, for that roster or more in free agency. So it's not that they did everything that they could, but they didn't ignore it altogether. You know, they took some swings and misses the draft and free agency. Like sometimes it just doesn't work out no matter how much you pay somebody or how high you pick them. So there's the front office trying to get guys maybe not as aggressively as it should have. And it didn't work out. The coaching scheme did him no favors. The offensive line just didn't protect him. And then his own playing style with these major things, it's often a confluence like that. It's not just the one thing that everybody gravitates toward right away. And with all of those things coming together, I mean, as you mentioned, wondering about how old he is, he's 32 right now. He retired August of 2019, just shy of his 30th birthday. And there are some pictures that I I think come up on, an initial Google search of his retirement press conference. I mean, you could tell me he's 39 and not 29 and I'd believe it. He just took an absolute beating before he was even 30. So, you know, hopefully he didn't take too much of a beating to compromise the rest of his life. And if he can just live happily without playing football, then more power to him.
0: Well, yeah. And something that's become more popular to talk about, I feel like in the last few years is quitting and, you know, again, people always think, like, quitting has such a bad rap. But I think that, like, that's why, again, I was so happy when you kind of said he he was quitting. You know, we don't, like, celebrate that enough and understand how hard of a decision that is. But there's something to someone knowing, like, no, my time is done. I'm not going to keep digging myself into this hole when, like, clearly his head and his heart and, frankly, his body just weren't into it anymore. I thought that was really great that he just made the really hard decision. I mean, his timing was rough and they get into that in the podcast. Um, You know, it was right before the season was about to start. It doesn't necessarily put his team in the best position to succeed. But having said that, I'm like, well, clearly there was a lot going on that he felt like he had to do it then. And what I also love in terms of, you know, celebrating for people knowing when to, to bail and quit was they talk about him and his wife and just how much happier they were, like when the, his last season was over, even though they lost and, you know, they they didn't get as far as they wanted to. And it just you kind of show them like, OK, so the writing was sort of on the wall. If like someone's happy the season's over after a, a pretty brutal loss and they seem like happier than they have ever been. Like he knew what was important to him and it just it wasn't getting himself beat up playing football anymore. And it seems like he actually is very happy being a dad and a husband and I'm, i mean, I don't know what else he does now, but like I said, the guy can kind of do anything, but that was one thing that I thought was, they could have maybe talked more about in the podcast, but again, maybe we just don't know. And he also, again, wasn't participating in it. Like some of these other, you know, documentaries and podcasts we're going to talk about. So, you know, maybe down the road, he'll talk more about it, but I do think there is something to be said for someone knowing when to call it quits. And, while it was hard for him to do just from this podcast series you can tell like he has no regrets like he seemed very comfortable with his life which I think is a really good example because as we'll talk about later there are other people who like they don't know when to walk away and that seems like a whole different kind of torture
1: yeah and if there's anything else you want to say on luck, we can weave it into the rest of this conversation. But when you mention somebody thinking about when to quit possible ramifications of that decision on a marriage and a family life, I think that came front and center in the Sean McVay profile in ESPN, again, published August 9th. And I think ESPN daily had a podcast episode that same day that dug into this. And with McVay, it was interesting because this off season He was pursued by Amazon. We thought maybe he'll go into broadcasting. And even though he's a young coach, relatively speaking, he's extremely young for his profession and the level of success that he's attained. But he seems very self-aware. On one hand, he grew up in a family where his grandfather was an executive with the 49ers back in their dynasty decades ago. And then his father kind of veered the other way because he didn't want to go down that path. And McVeigh kind of seems to be interested in trying to split that difference not falling into the same traps a lot of coaches do where it costs them their family life just to pursue success in the NFL but at the same time not getting out of it so soon when he still has so much fire for what he does every day
0: well it's interesting with him um, you read the piece but I listened um, to the podcast about the article and what was really interesting too was I think you kind of get front and center almost like the different generation he's part of he's a millennial like us like he's very close to our age and I feel like the the older coach coaches in the league which obviously he's the youngest so everyone's older than him you know you just kind of hear the same thing of you know it, it's hard it's a grind but they they love it and you know like you know people are like constantly in the office and they don't go home much and you kind of hear like Most of these guys are divorced and, you know, have tenuous relations with their kids. And I think it kind of McVeigh's age shows a bit in the piece because he's more of the generation that's kind of questioning all of that and going, oh, no, I get it. And he clearly wants to work hard and he's super motivated and dedicated. But I think he has the perspective to look around and just go, I I don't know if I want to be this forever. Like, I don't, I wouldn't be surprised if he quits in two years to do something else or if he sticks around for another 20. But it, it's nice to know that he's kind of thinking about that because I've watched this stuff for years and, you know, you and I have talked about it too. Sometimes I look at this and I'm like, how do these guys do this? Like, year after year, decade after decade and, you know, have any semblance of a life. And then for a lot of them, they don't have much of that. And it's, the, the coolest thing about the piece was, just listening to McVeigh wrestle with that, and just think, what do I want to do? Because clearly he has the energy for it now, and there's still a lot more he can accomplish. Like they just won the Super Bowl; like the sky is kind of the limit for him. But he, what's he willing to sacrifice for it? And he's newly married, you know, has a new house. He can kind of, to your point, with the Amazon deal or whatever it is, like he can do a lot of different things. He doesn't need the money. So it's how much does he want to push himself and for how long? And it was just refreshing to hear a guy, first off, because you don't hear a lot of guys talk about that at all. You hear the women talk about trying to have it all, all the time. And, you know, they get sometimes like really obnoxious comments about that. But I thought it was really cool to hear a younger guy talk about that and go like, yeah, I don't don't know that this is everything. I don't know if this is the right way to live my life. And I'm going to basically, it sounds like he's going to take it almost season by season.
1: And when you talk about a guy talking that way, it reminds me that his wife was one of the stars of the profile because she seems to be so healthily detached from the NFL and understanding that, okay, if they win, he might be happy later that night, but still a little bit bothered by things that they could have done better. Like any coach, always the perfectionist. And if they lose, forget it, give him his space. But understanding that it's, not personal. It's just how it is. And and really knowing who she's with and what she signed up for. And maybe it helps that she knows, okay, if I give him a few hours to blow off some steam, I know who I'm going to wake up next to, but her ability to be in his corner, but not be so beholden to the results, like her healthy detachment from it all, I think might help him in some ways, explore his own approach to all this because they don't have kids yet. They're newly married. Like they can kind of form this together. And as you talk about, you know, him being kind of between the old guard and and really maybe like the poster child of the new guard, I think of the Malinsky Minute. I wasn't sure if we'd be able to weave that into this conversation. But Dave, as successful as he was at betting, knowing when to get off the grid as he would put it, pursue other things that brought him more fulfillment, frankly. But also importantly, brought him back refocused, re-energized, recharged when it was time to get back to work. I mean, the end of the profile, this isn't going to spoil anything profound, but there's an anecdote the author shares where it's some hour in the middle of the night where you would almost have to question, okay, at this point, is it late or is it early? Like it's one of those odd hours and McVeigh still has one more thing on his to-do list and he doesn't have to do it that night, but if he did, maybe it would set him up for the next day or the rest of his week. And it's like, oh, if he goes straight, he'll go to his office and do his work. If he takes a right turn, he'll go up the stairs and go to bed. He goes right. And it's just nice to see that you don't have to live at the office or work around the clock. And, and maybe in some ways, okay, that can cost him. If he's putting in 1% less time or energy than some other coaches, maybe that can make the difference between winning a Super Bowl, winning your division, making the playoffs, and going home early. But ultimately... I think we see diminishing returns once people get too deep into their workday and that might be chronic in the NFL head coaching ranks more so than any other occupation.
0: Yeah, and I I mean they don't use I don't believe this word in the piece and it's a little like I really say now but like that balance like I don't think he's and he's acknowledged like I don't think he's striving for balance. I think with him he's not really changing the habits so much of the other coaches he, you know, has to compete with. It's more like he's acknowledging it, with, which is a really cool twist. It's almost more refreshing because he's going like, yeah, this is a system I'm in. It's like a 24-7 job and it's a grind. I'm just putting it out there that it's hard, you know, because, again, like I keep harping on. But this other generation of coaches kind of like, yeah, it is the way it is. Like you'd always hear those stories of like after, you know, the Super Bowl, the season's over. It's like they're on a plane talking to the other team or like, you know, they're rolling calls trying to get other players. And it's like it doesn't end. And I think when you were talking about how his wife is so supportive and stuff, I also wonder if, you know, McVeigh kind of is smart enough to know what he has and is like, yeah, I don't want to like throw this down the toilet for this game that, you know, let's be real. I think pretty much every coach gets fired at some point. So it's like the game you love doesn't always love you back. But if you have someone at home who does, like why would you throw that away for something that, You know, not every year are going to win the Super Bowl. There's going to be down times, and some ownership is – they're more patient than others. So I do think while he's not necessarily striving for balance currently in what he's doing, I think he's looking for life balance. And that's why, like I said, they kind of leave it open of how much longer will he do this. And like I said, I wouldn't be shocked if it's just a few more years or if he finds a way to do it for, you know, decades to come. But I think he's a really interesting one to watch for.
1: As you say that, I think of one of my favorite parts from the profile. I think they touched on it in the podcast as well. The details are a bit foggy in my memory, but it was something to the effect of it was that they call it Black Monday right after the regular season. That's when a lot of NFL coaches from bad teams get fired. And I think his wife said something to the effect, even though they had just they'd won their division, they were going to the playoffs. I think she just posed the hypothetical like, oh, what if that was our situation And he was just like, what do you mean? Like, that would never be our situation. And it's, on one hand, you have to be so confident and have so much conviction to not only survive, but to thrive in that kind of environment. Um, But at the same time, I do like that he's not taking it to the extreme of that means you never leave the office. And there is that human element where, again, I know he's younger, but I think of McVeigh, After reading that profile, kind of like how I've come to think of Mike Tomlin coaching the Steelers, where even though McVay's young and he's known to be a very good game planner and he does a lot of things that are cutting edge, from an analytics standpoint, McVay and Tomlin, from my understanding, they don't go for it on fourth down as much as they should. They don't throw on first down as often as they should. Again, going by the analytics and the new wave. So even though these are younger coaches who seem way cooler, I'd want to have a drink with them at the bar. Um they're not necessarily approaching certain situations all that different from the old guard when it comes to in-game management. But when it comes to um, a term that the other LA NFL head coach recently mentioned in the athletic Brandon's Staley talked about like math and mindset to guide his decisions. I know he's a bit of a lightning rod, much more aggressive in certain situations in game. But that mindset component, it's not just looking at numbers on a spreadsheet. It really is having a grasp of all the guys on your roster and holding a locker room together. And there was a really cool moment where the Rams got off to a really hot start last year, and then they hit the skids for a bit midseason. They were really struggling for a while. And I think McVay had a really profound conversation with Matthew Stafford, who they just brought in very high profile over the offseason. And it's like, look... If this doesn't work everybody's going to blame us like we're having a hard time right now and I think they just like kind of opened up to each other and it was supposed to be like almost a happenstance interaction that became a really long and deep conversation that you know it's easy to say in hindsight but even if the Rams didn't win the Super Bowl you can say that conversation had a lot of value in at least shifting their perception of what they were going to do and how they were going to go about trying to do it so With McVay, it's not just scheming up the perfect play, and I I think he might still have some room for improvement, even as an insanely young Super Bowl-winning head coach. Some room for improvement with in-game management decisions. He also seems to burn a lot of timeouts, as I recall. One of my Super Bowl prop bets was the Rams to call the first time out of the game, just because I remember that being a chronic issue for them in big games last season. They still overcame it. Give credit where it's due. And I think a big part of that credit is even if you make some of those tactical mistakes... Having a good understanding of your roster, all your guys, getting them to just row the boat in the same direction. You know, these games aren't played out on spreadsheets and they're not played by robots as much as the analytics crowd might like to think at times. And McVeigh is a really intriguing blend of both of those worlds. All right, so we've talked about Manti Teo and Untold, the Luck podcast series on Andrew Luck in The Athletic the McVeigh profile and podcast on ESPN. Let's move on here. We can wrap it up pretty quickly with these last couple ESPN plus documentaries, the man in the arena focusing on Tom Brady. That's not so new, but Brady is newsworthy as ever these days. And also a recent ESPN plus documentary, the captain probably some parallels here, but if we start with man in the arena, just thinking back to watching that throughout much of last year and then fast forwarding to what we've been getting out of Brady and Tampa Bay lately. Um, maybe what do you think of some of the Tom Brady conversation that you're hearing today and anything that, um, you know, might rekindle some memories from those, I think, 10 episodes of the man in the arena.
0: Yeah. I mean, that was a good series, or at least it started off really good because when he's talking about those games over 20 years ago, obviously he has so much more perspective, so those first few episodes of Man in the Arena, I thought were really well done, um, especially with uh, Drew Bledsoe. I thought he was excellent, and that couldn't have been easy for him to talk about, and he was, he was great and really respectful. So I really liked that part. And then as the series went on, though, I remember talking to you even when it came out. I go, why is he doing this now? And granted, it would have made more sense if... Like, we all thought, you know, at the end of this past season, he was going to announce his retirement, which he did for like a hot second. And you're like, oh, okay, he's, you know, closing things out. But then it was just awkward when it's like, just kidding, we keep going. And then they held on to that 10th episode. It was very strange. So the whole timing of it, it just felt like it was basically five years too soon. And it was just such funny timing because then with, The captain coming out recently, the whole time we're watching this, and granted, I know I'm a Yankee fan, and so I'm a little biased, but I thought that one was really well done, and I think every episode, I annoyed you because I kept going, this is what Tom Brady should have done. He should have waited like Jeter did till years after retirement, after you're already in the Hall of Fame, and then you can kind of loosen up a little bit and be more honest. Like, there were times, you know, with Derek Jeter, I'm like, I can't believe he's saying this right now, or, you know, he's... Kind of trash, not trash talking, that sounds like it's petty, but he's criticizing. He's criticizing players and guys who are also participating in his documentary. Because in the next scene, you cut over and it's, you know, Alex Rodriguez or some other players that he was basically just saying how mad he was at them or how annoyed he is with them. But then he still got them to participate. And they're all just being super honest and open and talking about, you know, issues with Yankee management and other players and teammates that Tom Brady just can't do because of the position he's in right now, still being so deep in the NFL, having to play with these people, having to play against some of these people. And it it just felt to me like oh, I hope he does this again like we need a do-over almost once he's retired because there were so many times, especially when he's talking about his end of the end of his time with the Patriots where you could tell he just had so much he wanted to say and was holding back. And that's unfortunate because granted he can take it to his grief. He doesn't have to talk to anyone about it, but he's the one making this documentary and it just felt like a little bit of a disservice to the audience. If you're going to make this and not be totally honest, especially after just seeing the Chicago Bulls, like Michael Jordan documentary, which was probably the best one I've ever seen and how, open he is and again the captain pretty open as well the Tom Brady one the man in the arena just fell flat to me again nothing against Tom Brady it's just because he's in such a tricky position
1: yeah I think that you hit on something good with a lot of the earlier episodes being great because that was happening 20 years ago at this point I mean 2001 was when he really came into the league and started to get a lot of playing time Drew Bledsoe was awesome in it, like you said, and some of the more recent stuff. You know, it's like I don't know. It's I don't think we have another Patriots Bucks game this year like we did last year, and it's unlikely they play in the Super Bowl. But there's a chance that he could be facing Belichick again or going up against some of these guys. So you almost have to be a little bit guarded in what you say. I remember in the Captain, I was really surprised to hear how much of the bulletin board material these guys actually absorbed, or at least in hindsight, they say they absorbed. I think it makes for a convenient narrative that what was it like before game five of the American league division series in 2001, I think it was a winner take all game in Oakland and the A's star third baseman, Eric Chavez said something to the effect in his pregame press conference of, Oh, I would like to win because I think the Yankees have had their time and now everybody wants to see somebody new. Like, yeah, you probably don't need to say that. But then after the Yankees won for Jeter and a bunch of guys to be like, yeah, like that really fired us up. I'm thinking, do you really need anything to give you added motivation right before you play a game with your season on the line? And the objective part of my mind says, no way, this is all just, you know, hindsight, fun narrative for a documentary. But at the same time, if you're opposing somebody great, you might not want to take the chance of saying anything that could fuel the fire. So if Brady has certain opponents that could be in his future with Tampa Bay, why say anything to jeopardize his chances of getting one more ring? And that makes me think that we won't get a bunch of insight from him when he's announcing you know, NFL games on Fox. We won't get a lot from him about his departure from New England. But when it comes to perhaps a more transparent critique On other players I think he's credible enough that he can be critical not in a way that will be personal to people but might be really valuable because it's going to be hopefully a very refreshing and transparent perspective from the best to ever do it and sometimes you wanted that transparency and man in the arena and you just couldn't quite get there
0: oh yeah again he's um, yeah he's in a tougher position for sure and it's so funny though too watching both of them because Derek Jeter and Tom Brady are very similar types of people and types of players, and Derek Jeter did it the way Tom Brady wanted to, right? Like, he stayed with the same team. He didn't get married while he was playing. He didn't have kids while he was playing. Like, in the Tom Brady documentary, uh, Man in the Arena or whatever, he keeps kind of talking about how that was always his plan. Like, he just wanted to focus on football. And then, I mean, yeah, you... He has, he has like, two great women in his life, models, actresses, and awesome kids. Like, he clearly doesn't regret any of that. But you kind of see, like, Jeter sort of stuck to the plan, almost to a fault. Because even Jeter's wife, who's fantastic, I thought in this series, she was funny, very honest. Like, she talks about kind of how hard it was almost being with him while he was playing. And frankly, how much better it is now that he's not But, you know, um, that was newer. Like, she kind of came on the scene towards the end of his career. Very different than, obviously, the Giselle Giselle Boonshin-Tom Brady relationship. But they do seem like very similar guys with a very singular focus. And it's, I mean, Jeter seems to have done well being retired. I think also waiting to get married and have a family after that. He has, like, a whole second act. And, obviously, Tom Brady has a lot lined up for him when he retires but it does seem like he's holding on and he just can't let it go. And that's also was really interesting to watch. Um, so it'll be kind of interesting to see how he handles it whenever he does leave. I mean, I don't know. I'm kind of thinking this has got to be his last season. We'll see. But I I'm kind of wondering if there will ever be, if he'll ever really spill the beans and, and talk, because to your point, like, he'll probably be broadcasting for the next 20 years after this. And and then what? And I don't, I don't know. I don't know that we'll ever get that honesty from him, but that's where the captain was. So refreshing because I mean, not quite the level of Michael Jordan, honesty, but pretty close.
1: I think you've made it very clear in this conversation, which one of us has the film and television degree. So as we look back on these five, again, we're, going to drop this episode just over a week from the start of the NFL season. If somebody's interested in a lot of these points but can't catch all 5 of them, how would you rank your order of somebody's looking at these fresh, which one to start with and then how to proceed from there?
0: Well, I would start actually with the McVay because there's just you can just listen to the one podcast episode so it's easier and it's timely because it's NFL and he's obviously a factor. He's the Super Bowl winning co- uh, coach coming into the season. And then again, I know it's not football, but I would watch the captain just because I, I thought it was refreshing. And, and that, to me, again, just like the Bulls documentary is a documentary done right because it has perspective, and he he gets everyone in there. It's really good. Um, so I would do I would prioritize those two, and frankly, like maybe watch the first few men in the Arenas, and then I would kind of stop because you're not going to get. You're not going to get like a nice bird's eye view that you really want to. I think it'll leave you like we both left it like a little disappointed because there's so much potential. Right. Like Tom Brady has one of the best stories in all of sports history. And it's it's story is not done yet. So it's a little bit like you're going to sink 10 hours into something that feels very unfinished. So that one, if you have the time, fine. Um I would say the luck one, too. He's, again, not as much a factor. He's retired, so take your time with that. But the six-part series was really well done. And it did shed some, shed some perspective that I didn't have on it. And then, again, like, then I would probably do Untold Last. It's a little more gossip column-y kind of feel. But it is, again, a very sympathetic view. And you ultimately leave hopeful, hopeful but still kind of sad for him but he seems to be doing great. He's married. He has kids. He's fine. Um, And it's just nice to hear like more of the truth of his story, but that's how I would rank them.
1: All right. Well, if you want to heed that advice, you've got a little more than one week to catch up from the time of this episode's release. And as we wrap things up, I'd be remiss not to include some big news about the near term future of props and hops, a co-host joining the show for the NFL season. So that is starting with next week's episode and that co-host going to be a favorite recurring guest on this show, The Hitman. Now again, taking a co-host chair alongside me, Hitman's a pro better. He will be putting the props and props and hops in a major way. We'll also be running props and hops on a new platform throughout the NFL season. I think it's going to be a game changer in sports betting content. I can't wait to share more on that very soon and a quick programming note starting next week with our week one show props and hops gonna be published weekly on fridays early afternoon eastern time late morning pacific time So thanks to everyone for listening to this conversation. If you've enjoyed it, I know it's a bit of a departure from the usual format, but really fun. A lot of good insight from somebody with that film and television degree, putting it to good use here. The number one way you can support Props and Hops would be to take just a few seconds to leave a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And most of all, thanks to you, Allison, for not just tolerating, but actively supporting and even participating in this podcast. Couldn't do it without you, and I'm forever grateful to have you on my side.
0: Thanks for having me.